This is Truth, Justice, and Hope, a podcast that explores the modern era of Superman and Superman-related comics. I'm Grant Richter, and this is Episode 5. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. This episode, we are going to finish out Clark's prequel adventures to the Rebirth era with issues 7 and 8 of the Superman Lois and Clark miniseries. It's been a fantastic series so far. These issues are really good, and I'm really looking forward to talking about them. But before we get into that, I have a few thoughts from here at the Fortress of Solitude. Now, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, I have really, really bad ADHD. I can remember what I got for my birthday when I turned four. I can remember what, cla- what the classroom looked like in study hall in like the 10th grade when I was reading a Dragonlance novel. But I have a lot of trouble remembering what I'm supposed to do later today or tomorrow. So I function by a series of constant repeating reminders that I have on my phone. You know, it's everything from helping my wife remember to take her her medication for the day or to water the plants or to uh, remember to dry the laundry before I go to bed or just whatever, just a constant stream of things. And, you know, they vary from day to day. They vary from week to week. But there are two that pop up all the time. Now, one of them is truth, justice, and hope. And that's just kind of, and that, I help, that goes off around 10 o'clock at night. And the reason I set that one for that time is as I get tired, my brain has trouble finding ways to not feel bad. Uh, Basically, being tired makes me feel depressed, even if I don't have anything to be depressed about. That's just how my brain works. Being tired makes me feel sad, makes me being sad, makes me feel depressed. And then I go through a, you know, a daily spiral. And truth, justice and hope is, you know, what goes off to remind me that, you know, everything's going to be okay. You know, it's like the cover image I I use for the show of Superman looking back over, looking back over his shoulder telling the rest of the Justice League, hey, it's going to be okay. And weirdly enough, that works. You know, I, you know, I start singing the, the John Williams Superman march in my head. I will usually just kind of flip through my, uh, my album of Superman images that I have saved on my phone. Uh, if I have a few seconds, I may just flip through a Superman comic on my phone, and I feel better. And it's weird. Now, the other one that I have... Um, that goes off every morning. It goes off about 8 o'clock, which is when I kind of get my day started, more or less. I get up you know, around 7, 7 o'clock, start getting the coffee going, but I really start functioning around 8. And that reminder is earn the symbol. And, of course, the symbol that it refers to is the Superman shield. But if I said earn the shield, I would start thinking about Captain America, and that's a whole other bag of complications that I don't want to get into right now. But it reminds me, you know, if you or I should say, in my opinion, if you are a Superman fan, you have an expectation to live up to. And <laughs> I know how that's going to sound, but it sound, it, you, it's almost like you are the real world representative of this character who represents the ideal of what 
people should be in terms of kindness, in terms of compassion, in terms of ethics, in terms of morality, all that stuff. And that really helps me a lot. And I know that's silly, but that's just how my brain works <laughs> along the same lines. If you are an actor who has played Superman or an actor who has played a member of Superman's family, you have an obligation to be a good person. But uh, <laughs> as a couple actors in the last few years have shown that is not always the case, you know, but luckily Tyler Hoechlin's a good dude. So hopefully he'll keep that up. Um, I don't know, you know, how the other guy is, but he seems like a nice guy, the, the one from the movies. But, you know, Tyler's pretty rad. Um, <laughs> anyway, so the reason this helps me is because for a long time, I was a terrible person. Like from like junior high on, I was just a spiraling mess of bad behavior that spun out of a lot of different and unfortunate factors. But I was very selfish for a very long time, and I was very lazy for a very long time. So reminding myself to earn the symbol, it's, I feel like I kind of got my act together finally about five years ago and stopped being a putz. <laughs> but, you know, it's natural for people to slide. It's, it's natural for people to slip back. And having a reminder to earn the symbol, to be a good real world <laughs> representative of the values of the House of L really helps me stay on track. And every time I feel, think, you know, it's, uh, it's okay to slide and be a little selfish or slide and be a little petty, I, I, you know, because I'm constantly glancing down at my phone because I'm you know, glued to Twitter and my comic book apps and all that other stuff and obsessively checking the weather reports because I live in a hurricane zone. Um, so every time I see that reminder, I'm like, yep, you know, you're right. It's, it's not cool to, you know, do that selfish thing I'm, I was vaguely thinking about doing or it's not okay to have that petty thought about that person that I don't like very much. And at the same time, it also reminds me to, to not gloss over my shortcoming. It reminds me, yes, I have them, and this is what I do to overcome them. And I think it's made me a stronger person for it. And so, uh, one second. Sorry, my kid had to come say hi. <laughs> but anyway, um, that's my thoughts from the Fortress of Solitude for this week. Uh, it's a little possibly too deep of a dive behind the curtain, but... Being a good person is very important to me. Growing as a person is very important to me. And I hope it's important to you too. So with all that said, let's get on to some comic books. Now before we get into this episode's actual issues, let's do a recap to get us caught up to what we've covered so far. Now, following the events of Convergence, which are a huge bunch of nonsense, the pre-Flashpoint Clark Kent and Lois Lane and their infant son John ended up in the New 52 universe shortly before the formation of that world's Justice League. Since they already have counterparts on this world, Clark and Lois have decided to remain incognito. They've moved to a farm in Northern California they're going by the last name White. They have not divulged their true nature to John as he's grown older. So he does not know of his partial alien heritage. He does not know he's from another alternate reality. And he does not know that his dad was Superman. I say it was Superman because in this world, as part of keeping incognito, even though he is wearing a black variation of the Superman costume, Clark is flying below the radar, basically. He is not, uh, he's staying out of the public eye. He's mostly operating at night. Uh, if he's around other people, he moves so fast that people can't really see who he is. Um, he also has a beard. 
to differentiate himself from his new 52 counterparts. So people don't go, hey, you kind of look like Superman, even though he is probably about 10 years older than his new 52 version. In this world, there is a Hank, a Hank Henshaw, um, though he has not become the cyborg Superman. He, like his pre-52, uh, pre, excuse me, pre-Flashpoint counterpart, was an astronaut. Um, like his other counterpart, he flew the space shuttle Excalibur, though as it came back from its return trip to Jupiter, it crash-landed. Clark helped it um, get back to the ground. The other crew members are missing. Clark took Henshaw to his makeshift Fortress of Solitude up in the Arctic Mountains, uh, where they were attacked by the psychokinetic sociopath known as Blank. Henshaw helped Clark get Blank back into his containment cell. Clark assumed it was because Henshaw used the weapon system of an alien spaceship, but in reality, we discover that Henshaw has possession of a crystal of some sort that enabled him to fire beams of energy. There is a, a alien warrior queen named Hyathis who has been going from system to system throughout the galaxy looking for this crystal that she calls the Oblivion Stone and that search has brought her to Earth. Meanwhile, an ex-con has been recruited by a television crew making a show called Badass Nation and they have given this ex-con a suit of power armor and given him the name Blackrock. And he is to pretend to be a supervillain, and he is to use the suit of armor to smash abandoned buildings and bridges that are scheduled for demolition so that the TV audience can get the simulated feel of what it's like to live the life of a supervillain. And the Badass Nation crew has arranged for Blackrock to smash a bridge, but they for, well, no, I wouldn't say forgot, but because of a mix-up, they did not get the bridge blocked off. So as he is smashing the bridge, cars are driving onto it and falling off. The Blackrock assumes it is only a um, part of the production. He thinks these are stunt drivers. Also, as part of her Staying below the radar, Lois has been publishing a series of books under the name of Author X. And one of these books that she's working on is an expose on the criminal organization known as Intergang. And even though Intergang doesn't know who she is, they have tracked her down. And they have attacked her and John once already, only to be saved by Clark. They have uh, Intergang has abducted them recently and stuck them, trapped them in the tool shed near John's elementary school and set it on fire. And as flames begin to consume the building, John realizes he is invulnerable to the flames as he reaches out and grabs the burning door handle, which catches, up, catches us up to our current issues. Superman Lois and Clark number seven is written by Dan Jurgens. It's penciled by Lee Weeks and Steven Segovia. It's inked by Scott Hanna, Jay Leaston, and unfortunately Art T. Bear. Though maybe this came out before T. Bear came out in support of the comic skate movement. And it is colored by Jeremy Cox. Now this issue, like many of them in this miniseries, has two covers. The main one is by Weeks. And it is of Blackrock in his armor blasting Clark uh, from standing behind him. And it's a really good cover. And it's all in shades of black and red and orange and yellow. Um, and it's really, it's really dynamic. It's a lot of, it's, it's very explosion-y, <laughs> I guess. And... I honestly like the way Blackrock's armor looks better in this color scheme than in it does, and it's kind of knockoff uh, Luthor suit uh, colors. The other cover is by John Romita Jr. Uh, I can't tell who inked it from the from the scribble signature. It's not good. Um, you know, I I really appreciate a lot of JRJR's older work on X Men and Daredevil and. 
and stuff like that from the from the late 80s and early 90s and um, I even like some of his um, more modern work on the new 52 Superman which we'll talk about next issue I'm sorry next episode this is not great it's basically just Clark in the black suit with the beard standing behind Lois and they're both looking off to their left looking angry when there's no background and their faces look weird and old and Clark looks like he has a giant drunk nose and it's just not not a good cover I'm I'm sorry uh I think what makes a good JR JR penciling these days is how much of the heavy lifting the inker does and I don't think the inker did the right amount of lifting on this cover but anyway it opens in a flashback, like many of these issues do in this series, and it, it just says several years ago, but John looks like he's somewhere between four and six, and he and Lois are coming in from the car with the groceries, and John has a Superman action figure and a Flash action figure, and he's making voom swoosh noises, and he's asking Lois who would win in a race, Superman or the Flash, and she says Superman probably would, and he says, well, that's too bad because... Superman has strength and flight and heat vision and everything else, and all Flash has going for him is the ability to run fast, so it would only be fair that Flash run faster. And I agree with that argument for different reasons. If the Flash is connected to the speed force, it would make sense that he would always be able to run a little faster than Superman, in my opinion. But uh, they go inside, and Clark has thrown them a small surprise party because Lois's first book as Author X, which is entitled Fortress Wall Street, America's True Ruling Class, has been published, and they're all very happy, and as they're talking about the book, John is still running around making voix noises with his toys, and that prompts Lois to ask Clark if he thinks that John will ever develop super speed, and he says it's, it's very likely that they will, and they're still going to keep quiet to him about his heritage at this point but they will bring that up when the time comes which flashes us back to the present and that time is coming uh, not necessarily with super speed but his other powers are emerging as John reaches through the flames of the burning tool shed to not only grab the door but to literally shove it off of the hinges and he and Lois go running out, and she's making sure he's okay. And he says, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think so. I don't hurt her anything, but I should, and I don't understand. And that is when the intergang goons who locked them in there see that they've escaped and come running towards them. While all that go is going on, Clark is dealing with Blackrock on the bridge, um, and like I mentioned last issue, it's not, it doesn't say what city this is in. It just says Roosevelt Bridge. And there's a few Roosevelt Bridges across the country, according to Wikipedia, so I don't know. Um, but, you know, BlackRock is giving him a lot of attitudes. Like, you ain't Superman. And he, he thinks this is all part of the show. He, BlackRock thinks that the show has hired someone with superpowers to be like a knockoff version of Superman. And he's trying to smack Clark around, and that's not going very well. Uh, because, one, Clark is way more powerful than Blackrock's armor is. And Clark is mad that Blackrock's destruction is endangering lives. And has probably ended up killing people. And he completely shreds Blackrock's armor. And he's telling him, why would you do this? What could you, what could you possibly hope to get out of this? And that's when Blackrock is like, whoa, 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 man, I just did this. I just did what I was told to do. This is all part of a TV show. And that's when Clark really understands what's going on. And he sees the TV crew down below. He's still very mad at Blackrock for being irresponsible. Um, you know, Clark is saying, you were willing to kill for demented garbage that only exists to sell beer and antacid tablets. And he, he's kind of choking Blackrock. He's so mad. And the the guy who wears the Blackrock armor, I forget what his real name is. He's like, it wasn't my fault. They were supposed to block the road. And so Clark uses his heat vision to melt the cameraman's camera. And the, the lady who's kind of in charge of the whole thing says, good thing the van's recording equipment has the footage. 
in the next panel, we see that Clark has used his heat vision to melt the camera anymore. And she says, do you know what this really means to my career? I'm done. So she's more worried about her, her career than she is about all the lives that uh, have been endangered and possibly lost as part of her TV stunt. And so as Clark flies off, he, uh, you know, he is thinking, you know, it's, it's a good thing I have to get to Lois and John's. If I stay, it might get ugly. So again, we're seeing that Jurgens is writing this version of Clark as someone who's, who's maybe entered slightly a bit of a moral gray area because he is willing to compromise or is very tempted to compromise on some of his ethics. Uh, and I imagine a lot of that has to do with the stress of keeping everything secret so that Lois and John can be safe as possible in this new universe. From there, we jump over to the island where Clark helped the space shuttle Excalibur land. And both Henshaw and Agent Chambers of the U.S. government are being confronted by Hyathis. And she demands to know where the Oblivion Stone is. Chambers doesn't know what she's talking about, calls her Honey Bunch, which she doesn't take very kindly, and shoots at her, which she doesn't take kindly and is completely useless. And so she kind of stomps him down. <laughs> she's just, boom, with one foot right across the face. And he yells for Henshaw to run, so Henshaw starts to run away, but Hyathis can apparently also control plants. So she summons a bunch of plants out of the ground, and they grab uh, Henshaw and hold him in place, and are kind of choking him a little bit. And she thinks it is strange that his mind is not open to her, and that's the second time we've had a reference to uh, Henshaw having an unusual amount of either psychic susceptibility or psychic resistance or being a psychic conduit of some kind. And she says he has the oblivion stone. She demands that he give it to her and he pulls it out of his pocket. And it's kind of a vaguely heart shaped or like, you know, Valentine's shaped red gem. And he says this, and she says, that is all you have. Where is the other half? So the mystery deepens. But from there, we jump back over to John's elementary school where Lois and John are standing outside of the burning shed and they're being confronted and cornered by the intergang goons and they are going to shoot Lois and John to take care of the problem directly. But just as they open fire, Clark swoops in, blocks the bullets, grabs Lois and John and flies away. And so this is John getting the first, uh, the first instance of John seeing his dad in action. And Clark does not go back for the goons, but they have wandered too close to the burning shed full of gasoline and it explodes. And that becomes kind of a self-correcting problem. So they fly back to the farm, uh, which again is street number 1938, which is a fun little homage to the date of uh, the first appearance of Superman. And on the way, Lois is now regretting that they never told John about them being from another reality and from Clark's powers and of John's nature. And she is dreading the conversation that they're going to have when they land. And of course, as soon as they land, John is very upset. He's very confused. Um, he sees the S on Clark's chest. He's like, what are you, some kind of Superman? And Clark's answer is pretty much, it's complicated. And John is very upset about being lied to. So Clark explains. He explains, you know, also Lois explains to Clark that John just manifested the first sign of his powers. And Clark's like, oh, oh boy. So Clark explains. He explains that they're from an alternate reality. He explains that he was Superman in that reality. He explains that they've been hiding here because of the presence of the other Superman and of the other Lois Lane. And, well, I don't think he really explains that his mom is, is Lois Lane, but I think it's implied. And John actually thinks it's kind of cool. He's, you know, he's not thrilled about the fact that his parents lied to him. 
But Clark explains, our priority has been keeping you safe, John, except for mom's publisher, no one knows, and even she doesn't know about me. So, you know, John says it's fair, it's not fair. He he feels like if they had told him his nature, he maybe could have developed his powers early. And they're like, no, we didn't have any idea you would develop powers until you actually developed powers. We knew it was a possibility, but not, not a certainty. And so Clark goes on to explain more and to justify their decision more. But then he has a blinding vision of a really cool shot. I'm going to post this one on Twitter of a bunch of alien warriors just massacring humans across the globe. And he feels like they are looking for him. So he is definitely not going to let that violence come to his home and to his family. And of course, he's also going to stop that violence from raging across the planet. And so he is going looking for it. So he flies off and John is looking up. He's that is just so cool. So maybe John's not quite as upset anymore which is nice. And Lois says, I feel the same way, honey, every time I see it. So from there, we jump back to the island and Henshaw is still being bound by Hathis's plant. She slammed him up against the wall so hard that it just cracked the wall behind him. And he doesn't know where the other half of the Oblivion Stone is. He didn't know there was another half of the Oblivion Stone. And uh, so Hyathis is looking at her half and says uh, she can sense that he's used it. And she looks at the gem and says, where is your mate? I must find it for as split as you are. Your power is a fraction. And then from there, we see inside Clark's matrix makeshift fortress. And we see the other half of the Oblivion Stone set into a pendant of a necklace, which is suspended in a in a display case near the statue of his birth parents and the Cundian war suit. And in, uh, I want to say, issue four, where he's fighting, uh, or Clark is fighting blank, and Lois calls to the fortress, I think the call is received through the necklace somehow. I could have interpreted that scene wrong, but as uh, I've mentioned, I like that um, Jurgens and Weeks are setting up kind of a, a lot of mystery here. They set up things where you don't quite know what's going on every time. And then it's usually revealed an issue or two later, which I really like. It kind of reminds me of the good parts of Claremont from the late 80s, where something would happen, it would get dropped, you'd be a little confused. And a few issues later, it'd get picked up and explained. And I, I do like that in my comic book storytelling. So I really, really like this issue. This looks so good. Uh, Weeks is doing such a great job of illustrating this book. I really like the colors. Um, the inks are, are good. I'm not really a big judge of inks, but I know what I like and I know what I don't. Um, there are very few inkers that I can point them at and go, oh, that's so-and-so. You know, I can point out Tom Palmer and... Um, uh, you know, especially his Avenger stuff in the late 80s and early 90s. And um, I can point out the names of the inker who used to ink John Buscema way back in the day, whose name I can no longer remember because I'm a, because I'm a spaz. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, like I said, I, I know inks when I see them and I really like this. Um, really good issue. I was kind of, I'd forgotten that Hyathis could control plants, which kind of makes sense because her name kind of sounds like Hyacinth. Um, but yeah, she, it's, it's just a good issue all around. I really like the transition, uh, from John being really upset to his parents to realizing that his situation is actually pretty awesome. So yeah, this is just a really great issue. And again, the, the vision that Clark sees of the alien warriors is really, really good. And I'm definitely going to post that one on Twitter once the, uh, once this episode launches. So that is episode, or excuse me, that is issue seven. We have one more issue to go with this mini series. So I am going to take a sponsor break and then we'll come back for the next and final issue of Superman, Lois and Clark. And we're back. And if the audio in this half of the episode sounds a little differently, 
I'll tell you why at the end of the episode. And thank you, Sarah. So Superman and Lois, no, I'm sorry, Superman, Lois and Clark, I'm thinking of the TV show, number eight is by, I'm sorry, uh, of course, Dan Jurgens and Lee Weeks and Scott Hanna with Jeremy Cox as the colorist and Larger World Studios as the letter. And this issue has my favorite cover of the entire miniseries. It is John standing in front of the uh, the chest where Clark keeps his classic Superman uniform. And the lid is open and he's pulling the cape out of the box and he's looking down at it almost kind of reverently. And their dog, Ranger, who is a golden retriever, I think, is looking down in the box with him. And the background is almost entirely white. All you see is a little bit of the boards, the floor that he's standing on, and the stairs that leave, lead up out of the basement. And then in the doorway to the basement, we see the outlines of Clark and Lois standing in front of a window. It's a really effective cover. It almost has kind of a uh, Norman Rockwell quality to it, but also the blank background and just the silhouettes of Lois and Clark upstairs make it almost a little eerie. It makes it alien. It's a perfect cover. It is. It encapsulates everything about this miniseries, that there is a wholesomeness to the the Kent family, but because of the nature of Clark's origin and his powers and John's emerging powers and the fact that they're from an, a completely other universe does give them a very alien quality. So it really is just a perfect cover all around. So it opens up and this one actually does not open with a flashback. So this is a first for the miniseries, uh, which I think you know encapsulates the fact that we are now caught up with John's journey to his superpowers. And he and Lois are sitting on the front porch of the farm and John is flipping through Lois's scrapbook of newspaper clippings of all the disasters that Clark has helped avert, co helped avert covertly. Ha. And he's saying, you know, are these stories really about dad? And she's saying, yes, he did all this without people knowing. Uh, he operated in secret, but he was able to, to prevent catastrophes and save hundreds of thousands of lives. And John says, what is he doing right now? Which is kind of our expositional way of getting the reader up to what's going on in case they haven't read this in a month. And she says he was experiencing these visions as though someone were trying to communicate with him. So he went to go check it out. Um and uh, John asks her if he ever worries about Clark. And she says, yes, of course I do. But he's very resourceful. He's very powerful. He's able to take care of himself. And this is a great, uh, this is a great panel. John says, because he can lift like two boulders and fly. And Lois says, true, but it's far more than this powers and define him. Integrity, honor, doing the right thing. That's what Superman truly stands for. <laughs> and John just ignores that and goes, think I can fly? And so he stands on the front porch of uh, the, the front steps of the porch and he jumps and he goes, I'm going to fly right now. And then he face plants because, of course, his powers are not that developed yet. Uh, John will not be learning how to fly for quite some time, uh, comic book wise. Uh, but she says, you know, we're, we're working on that. Uh, he's going to protect us from inner gang. He's going to get this whole thing solved. Um John asks if we have to move away again. She says, if we do, you know, at least we'll all be together. And John says, other kids have dads that sell insurance or work in a mall or sit in front of a computer all day. It's really weird having a dad that, that's off fighting supervillains. So from there, we see Clark in space in the orbit of, the, of Earth flying towards the island where um, he kind of sort of crash landed the space shuttle Excalibur. As he gets closer, he uses his X-ray vision, and he sees Hyathis um, binding um, Henshaw and the uh, the agent guy uh, to the walls and floor and kind of work surface uh, within the within the compound. 
and she is threatening Henshaw with a glowing sword. And um, as he draws near, Hyathis turns, looks over her shoulder, says, the Kryptonian, he comes. And so she has extrasensory powers as well. Clark says, I'm glad you can see me. It means I don't have to hold back. And he smashes into her as he crashes through the wall of the facility. They smash out the other side. Um, it's like a, um, it's not really a facility. It's like more like a command trailer. But they crash through to the other side, out into the jungle. And the fight commences. And the next several pages are mostly just fight with a little, ex- with little dialogue thrown in. Um, basically she is super tough. She's able to take his hardest blows and shrug them off. Um, she smacks him with the sword. She throws the sword at him. He deflects it with his arm. And, um, she talks about, um, the oblivion stone that he has it. And he realizes that she is talking about the red crystal on a pendant, uh, on a necklace that he has. Um, in a display case in his fortress. He goes, I have a necklace there with a partial jewel that I came across several years ago. No idea if it has a name, but if that's it. Um, Henshaw then gets involved and he kind of tries to side tackle Hyathis and says, you can't let her have it, Superman. It's power. And she hurls him away. Um, Let's see. Hyathis says, the traveler was stationed near the world you call Jupiter. He found it and brought it back with him. They are bonded. So Henshaw is definitely, um, he does more than just hold the gem. He more does more than just have the gem. He is bonded to the Oblivion Stone or to this half of, of Oblivion Stone. And she says, it's like godhood being wasted on a grain of dust. And she uses her powers to have more plants spring up from the ground and hold Clark in place. And she tries to torture Clark into telling her where he has the other half of the stone. She slices him with her sword, which kind of surprised me because again, he did deflect it with his arm just moments ago, but and they don't really explain why it could be a couple things. It could be, he was able to deflect the flat of the blade or maybe it's more powerful when she's actually holding it because she did throw it at him when he deflected it. And uh, Clark is also surprised as well because he uh, he doesn't know if her sword is able to cut him because it's just that powerful or because uh, he is weaker in this universe. But he gets tired of this uh, mistreatment and he blasts her with the heat vision. She goes slamming back into the command um uh, command trailer and he breaks three breaks through of the hold of the vines snap 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 um and uh it looks like hyathis his oh no no hyathis had henshaw's half of the gem in her hand she drops it henshaw runs over picks it back up and stuffs it in the shirt pocket of his uniform um but Clark and Hyathis fight a little more. The uh, Agent Chambers, he comes out. He sh- he shoots at Hyathis with a handgun. It doesn't really do anything. It bounces off her armor. Um, it, we don't really see it hitting her skin, but we see it hitting her helmet and her breastplate and her um, those arm guard things. I forget what they're called, the ones that go on your forearms. But uh, it has no effect on her. And uh, But... Uh, what it does accomplish, it distracts her long enough for Clark to elbow her in the back of the head. <laughs> a little, uh, little, dirt, little uh, dirty fighting there, Clark. And he uh, he throws her into what remains of the command uh, the command trailer. And she stands up and she has this great big mop of just unruly pink hair. And maybe it's supposed to be kind of like dreadlocks, but it almost looks like plant leaves, which is, I think is a really neat touch again, because of her name and the fact that she can control plants and, you know, they're about to, uh, they're about to throw down for the final time. She says, this can only end with one of us dead. So be it. He says, your words, not mine, but you should know it won't be me. So Clark is ready to do what needs to be done. Um, and again, I, I don't, think that this attitude is something that's going to carry over 
into the Action Comics ongoing series that Jurgens is going to write. But this, you know, like I've said, uh, both the first half of this episode and in previous episodes, this is a Clark who is maybe willing to go just a little further than we have traditionally seen. You know, we have the classic story from the end of the John Byrne era in the late 80s, where Clark executes the three Phantom Zone criminals of the pocket universe who had literally destroyed all life in that universe. Of course, all life in that universe consisted of Earth, but still they wiped out all life on Earth. Um, Clark used gold kryptonite to take away their powers, um, but they promised to get their powers back somehow and to somehow make it to the, the greater universe at large and to destroy all life in that universe as well. And Clark executed them to protect life on the greater scale. And after that, we have the, the Superman in exile story where his grief causes him to exile himself for fear that he's going to uh, have a nervous breakdown and hurt people. And at the end of that story, he you know, vows to be a champion of life and to never take a life again. And here we have a Clark who is willing to take a life if that is what is needed to get the job done. It may be a bluff. You know, again, he may just be be talking hard just to you know show her that he's not going to back down from this fight. I don't know. But I, in my opinion, I don't know. You know, I, I'm, I'm not even going to try to interview Dan Jurgens. You know, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. But in my guess, I would say that in this miniseries, Jurgens was trying to show that Clark has had to enter more of a morally gray area, uh, which is um, maybe represented by the black suit. And... Uh, I, I maybe that didn't go over well with editorial. I don't know, or maybe it was something he had intended to stay within the confines of this miniseries to show that it's more like a black ops Clark, if that makes sense. But I don't know. But he's definitely showing here that this Clark might—he never does, but he might kill if that was what was absolutely necessary. Um, which is interesting. I don't know if I like it or not. I, I kind of don't, but it is an interesting um, story development. But um, she takes that option out of her hands because I think, you know, if he was bluffing, uh, she did not call it. She goes, well, the stone is what I want and I shall have it in due time. And then she teleports away. So the fight is over. So, so that whole rant that I went on is a moot point. But again, I felt like it was worth uh, worth mentioning. And that is when Chambers turns his gun on Superman on Clark and says, "You aren't Superman. Who are you? I've spent a long, I spent years looking for a ghost, a mysterious present helping out. I think you're the ghost." And then Clark just flies off without saying anything. <laughs> and he's shouting after him, "How long have you been here? I need to know." And Chambers turns toward Henshaw and he says, "How about we start with what you know?" And Henshaw says, I know no more than you. I saw him for the first time. I just saw him for the first time too, which is a lie. Um, and Chambers says, you know a lot more than you're letting on Henshaw. One day I'll nail you on it. And again, I have to wonder if this was a plot thread that Jurgens intended to bring up later. Um, I feel personally that Jurgens' run was cut short. I felt, you know, I've, I've read interviews with him about a character that we're going to meet next episode and about the reveal of the identity of that character. And um, Jurgen, there, there were rumors about that, how that character was going to end up being revealed as a character from the Watchmen. Jurgen says that was never the intention, but I get kind of get the implication that the, actual reveal of that character's identity was not what Jurgens had planned later. I felt like that tied in more to the writer who took over after both Jurgens and Tomasi, um, uh, starting with Action Comics number 1000. And I feel like there were some plot threads that Jurgens was setting up that he never got a chance to get back around to. I don't remember if we see Hyathis again or not. Um, 
I think she's kind of just more like a vehicle to push the story of what's going on with Henshaw forward. Again, I don't, again, I, I don't remember, honestly, and I'm, I'm not going to read ahead to refresh my memory. I want to, I want to be re-revealed with this as I talk about it with you guys. But um, I kind of wish there was more of this, th- and, and I'm almost 90% sure that Agent Chambers doesn't turn back up again. We get a whole other mystery that comes up starting with the first issue of uh, action, you know, the rebirth era of action comics, which is uh, pretty neat. But I don't think we see Agent Chambers again looking into the mystery of who this mysterious savior was because it, it, it does kind of become moot again, um, starting with the first issue of the rebirth era of action comics. But I think it's interesting to the idea of having a government agent investigating how long Superman has been doing Superman things behind the scenes when there already is another Superman. I think that would be, have been an interesting subplot to have continued but after that, Clark flies home. John is worried. Uh, he's sitting on the front porch with Lois and Ranger. But then Clark flies down, and John goes, "Yay, Dad, you're home!" And um, he tells about what happened. And uh, you know, again, Clark says, "I also encountered a government agent who's been investigating unexplained exploits." And uh, Clark says he realized there may be a man behind the miracles. It feels like our cover is eroding. And again, this may be um, just a setup to uh, what happens in uh, the first issues of Rebirth Superman and Superman and Rebirth Action Comics, but who knows? Um, but the uh, Lois says that her uh, her publisher Cora called and said when her book about Inner Gang drops next week, the Feds have been given an advanced copy of it, and they've used information in that book to already begun an operation to shut down inner gang. So that's really cool. So author X does it again. Lois flexes the muscle and says, you got that right. But John is still upset because inner gang tried to kill them. If it hadn't been for Clark, they would have. And up until a couple days ago, he thought he was a normal kid and he's still kind of upset. You know, he's, he, the novelty of having a dad who could fly and lift two, two bulldozers distracted him from being upset that he was lied to that has worn off and um he says uh, now i'm hearing about other planets and aliens and dad being superman even though there's just there's another superman and i just i mean i really want to know what does it all mean so uh clark takes him into um actually it looks like the it looks like a cellar in the barn maybe yeah, that's what it looks like. It could be a it could be just a basement anywhere, but it's a cellar in the barn. And Clark goes down there and he gets the trunk that has his suit in it. And as he's walking along, I'm going to read you what he says. He goes, there was a time when I had the same questions you do now. Pa showed me something that opened my eyes to the truth. It helped me understand who I was, where I came from, and what my future might be, and why everything would be okay. This, is, this earth is an awful lot like the one we left, but there are some pretty big differences. It's more harsh and cynical. Again, um, referencing how the New 52 universe, it, is, it does reflect, at least initially, reflected more how people in real life would probably respond to the appearance of superheroes. And he goes, and of course, Metropolis already had its own Superman, even though people didn't embrace him the way I had been. And so, you know, also keeping in mind um, the fact that that Superman was revealed to be Clark Kent, which is another reason that they've had to keep their identity so secret. It's not just about uh, Clark going out and doing Superman things in secret. It's about keeping the identities of you know this Lois and this Clark secret from the general population of this Earth. Um, so as Clark opens the trunk, he says, none of us are born knowing what to do, John. We all need help getting pointed in the right direction. Mom and I are here. Mom and I are here to do that for you. And as he says this, he brings out his cape that he wore with his classic, classic Superman costume. And he hands it to John. And John goes, you are a cape? And he just looks at it and he just stares at it for a minute. And again, there's a certain reverence about it too. 
And Lois says, I know you feel lied to. Do you understand what we did? And as Clark throws the, the cape over his shoulder, it's like, yeah, I know. I know you were keeping me safe. And the cape is totally on sideways. The, the back of it, the all yellow S shield is hanging crooked. But John has tied the cape around his neck like I did with a towel when I was six years old. And he starts running around the yard and he's like, uh, so I, he goes, I tried this before, but it didn't work. Probably. And he says, probably P R O apostrophe L L Y cause C U Z probably cause I didn't try hard enough. Gonna really, really, really concentrate. And you see him like just sitting there kind of serenely closing his eyes and you see him jump into the air. And then, uh, <laughs> even though I lied a little bit earlier, it looks like he does actually fly. Um, I think once we get into the rebirth books, especially Super Sons, I think it's going to be revealed that John couldn't actually fly. It may just be that retcon wise, it could be explained that John was just jumping really high. But there's a really cool splash page of John in the air, holding the cape in his hands behind him with it tied around his neck. It is much longer than he is tall. <laughs> and so it trails like a good feet or two behind him with uh, John uh, Lois leaning against Clark with Clark has his hand around her shoulders. He's holding her other hand. Um, Lois is holding Clark's Superman shirt in her other hand. And Ranger is on his hind legs looking up at his buddy, John. And it's just a like a starburst, light burst pattern behind the three of them, four of them if you include Ranger. And it's just a really cute panel uh, slash, excuse me, slash splash page as John shouts, ta-da! And Lois says, I always knew you were my little Superboy. And that, folks, is the end of Superman, Lois, and Clark. The first prelude to Clark's adventures in the new 52 universe. I know I said prequel at the beginning of this episode, but you'll just have to forgive me for that. Again, really good issue. Um, very good series all around. Uh, only one issue of it that I didn't like. I think it was the one that had Batman on the cover, not because it had Batman on the cover, but because uh, the art got a little wonky in it and the story wasn't that great. Pardon me when I stopped to have a sip of coffee. But an excellent miniseries all around. I think it really sets the stage for a lot of what we're going to be seeing in the next few issues. So let me pause for just a minute and I will be back and we will wrap up this episode. So before I go, there are a few things that I want to talk about. Uh, first of all, I mentioned either the first or second episode starting then that you can support the podcast directly through Anchor Support Services, kind of sort of like Patreon. And if you attempted to go do that uh, prior to last week, I thank you. And I also apologize for the not for the option not being there. Apparently, when you set that up with Anchor, it takes a while for it to get completely set up or I just did it wrong or something. But it's available now. And um, I want to talk to you guys about that um, because, first of all, I have a hard time doing anything just for myself, especially something that's fun. Um, my whole life right now is about taking care of other people. For about 15 years, I worked a very physically, mentally, and emotionally stressful job to put my wife through school. And also had the health insurance. So when she started the workforce, you know, I could be the, the health insurance person. And then for the past six years, since she kind of moved up in the workplace, uh, I've had the privilege to be able to stay home to take care of both her and my daughter with their, both of their physical limitations and to make the food that we need for our dietary restrictions. And um, ever since COVID started to also homeschool my daughter to keep her safe because of her health problems. Um, I, I won't lie though. I am a terrible, terrible housekeeper. I'm, I'm just awful, but at least I keep the clothes clean and I keep the dishes washed. But um, so everything about me 
when I go to do something for myself is like after about five minutes of it, it's like I could be doing something else right now. Or what if somebody needs my help and I'm off goofing around? So that's why up until very recently, I used to record this show in my bedroom on my phone, on the app on my phone for about maybe five to 10 minutes at a time, which is why the show came out at a very sporadic schedule. And last night I set a goal for myself and because with the way Anchor does its direct payments, it doesn't give you the option to make uh, bonus episodes. And honestly, even trying to dedicate more time to it, I don't think I would just have, I don't think I would have time to do bonus episodes for uh, donors or you know, patrons, quote unquote, even though it's not Patreon. But what I decided I could do is I set a goal and I said, if the show begins making $10 a month, I will dedicate time every week, every other weekend to sit down at a computer with a microphone and record the show all in one stretch. And that goal was met. And again, thank you, Sarah. Um, and so that is why I mentioned at the beginning of the second half of the show that may sound differently. I don't know if it does or not, but I'm actually sitting at a computer. I actually have a microphone in front of me that I am talking into to record this. So um, my second goal is if the show begins making $20 a month, I will sit down every weekend to do this. So as of right now, um, I'm going to sit down every other weekend to record the episodes and I will get them to you every other Monday. So you guys now have a fixed release schedule for the show. Yay. If you really, really like what I'm doing, and if you would like this show to come out every week, once I meet that $20 support goal or donation goal, I will record this show every weekend. Because doing something for myself that's just fun, which this show is. Doing this show is mostly for me, and it is a ton of fun. But if you are donating to the show, I am doing it for you. I'm doing it for everyone to listen to. But if you're a donor... I'm doing it for you specifically. And I will, like I said, I will do this show every weekend and get it out once a week if the show gets up to a $20 donation uh, mark. So now if we get past that, if we get to 30, then I will figure something out. Maybe I'll give uh, donors, supporters the option to, you know, help pick like uh, the theme of a show or, or an episode or something. I don't know. I'll work it out. We'll talk about it if we get to it. Um, but yes, if you are interested in becoming a supporter of the show, please visit anchor.fm slash truth, justice, and hope and click on the support button. It gives you a $1, $5 and $10 option. It would mean the world to me. Um, this show has already become a little bit of a side hustle and now I can at least afford to pay for my DC app subscription every month. So thank you very much. And thank you if you're not already doing it for considering doing so. All right, enough of the enough of the the self promotion. So, or I know I still have more self promotion, but enough of the potential money making production. Um, if you enjoy me talking about Superman in general, and you would like to see it in written form, I am on Twitter at about Superman. Um, I don't do synopsis threads anymore because I don't have the time, honestly. But I do. Uh, comment on most every episode, every issue of Superman that I read. Right now I am rereading the late 80s run of the three Superman books. I just finished Superman in Exile. Superman is just about to return to Earth and we are very, very close to the Brainiac trilogy, which I'm super excited about. I'm also my way, making my way through early 2000s Superman at this time. I am about halfway to, through 2001, so we have the establishment of President Luthor, which is a really cool subplot. I did not honestly enjoy the year 2000 very much in, this, in those books, but I'm really enjoying 2001. Um, and I'm also in preparation for this show, obviously, rereading the rebirth era and i'm also reading some of the superman related books that i uh skipped over the first time like supergirl and superwoman and new superman so those are going to be some very interesting reads and i cannot wait to talk to you guys about them so um as i mentioned we now have a fixed schedule for the show 
you will you should be hearing this episode on Monday. What is this month? September 20th. I hope you enjoy it. You will hear the next episode two weeks afterwards. And in that episode, we will be talking about, we'll be very, I have a thousand foot view because I'm not going very deep into them. But pre-Flashpoint Clark does appear in the last three issues of the Death of New Super, excuse me, Death of New 52 Superman arc in Superman in Action Comics and Superman Wonder Woman. So we'll be talking a little bit about that. We will be talking about uh, Clark's appearances in the Rebirth one-shot. And then we will also be going in-depth into the Superman Rebirth one-shot. And then the episode after that, we will actually begin talking about the Superman Rebirth book. So I'm very, very excited about uh, the path that the show is taking. I'm very excited about the direction it's going. I'm very excited about what's coming up in the future. And I will be talking to you guys about that in two weeks. But until then, remember to fight fear at every turn with an open heart and an open mind. Love you.